This is the Social Leader Podcast, inspired by business leaders, entrepreneurs, volunteers, and visioneers striving to close the gap between their passion and their social action. They are the leaders among us who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charitable intentions to lead with greater social impact every day. Social leaders are the most impactful leaders in the world because they are empowering companies and communities to sustainably solve our world's most pressing problems. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Father Justin Matthews. So glad that you've joined us today. And I am excited to introduce our guest, Brian McLaren. Brian is an accomplished leader, author, speaker, activist, and theologian. He's a former English teacher and a pastor. He speaks about just generous Christianity, working with people from all faiths to create common good. He's a faculty member of the Living School. He's a podcaster. In fact, I just finished listening to an amazing podcast series called Learning How to See, all about bias, and absolutely recommend that one. Brian has authored scores of books, dozens of books and articles, including actually two of my favorites, A Generous Orthodoxy and also Everything Must Change, which traces critical ways in which Jesus's message confronts our contemporary global crises. You might have heard Brian. He's a frequent guest on television shows and radio programs, including All Things Considered, Larry King Live, Nightline, and I have no idea how we got him on our podcast, <laughs> but we are so grateful, Brian, uh, to have you on the Social Leader Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Are, are you kidding? I've been working through all those other ones so I could get to you. So I'm so happy to be here with you, Justin. Absolutely. Thank you for your kindness. Well, I want to dive right in because we have a, a lot to cover. And as you know, on this podcast, we spend a lot of time reflecting on leadership, but not just old school leadership from yesterday. We think about leadership um, within the framework of our current context, a context whereby we have all lived through a global pandemic. We've suffered from the trauma and the mental health effects of that pandemic. We've lost friends. We've watched protests. We've participated in protests. We've seen the death of George Floyd and so many other issues. But we as leaders still, I think, find ourselves very often saying, but what can I do? How am I going to get equipped to make a difference? And, and really, a lot of leaders talk to me about not seeing the connection between business and their daily work and then solving those crises that they see around them. So I wanted to start there. I wanted to ask you, you've been a leader and a pastor for over 24 years. And in particular, I've been impressed because you've lived your life and your leadership out at the intersection of faith, entrepreneurship, and business. Tell me more about that intersection and about your leadership journey, Brian. Well, it's funny. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, Father Justin, is a story that happened when, when I was a pastor. I, I was preaching a sermon uh, on, I called it a theology of work. And after this, and, and the big idea, I was working with some scripture passages that talk about how our faith, uh, our morality should affect our, our daily work. 
And a fellow came up to me afterwards and he said, his name was George. He said, uh, uh, he said, I've never been to church, this church before. He says, I've only been to church a few times in my life. He said, to be honest with you, the only reason I'm here is my wife and I have been having some trouble in our marriage and we thought church might help us. He said, I never thought I'd come and actually enjoy it. He said, um, he says, I'm a rocket scientist, like not in a joke. I'm really a rocket scientist. And I started an aerospace engineering company. So when I heard you talk today, I felt like you were describing why I do what I do. He says, I'm not just trying to make money. He said, I have 200 employees and I wake up every day thinking that the work that we do supports those families. And he said, not only that, but we're in aerospace engineering. And the, when what happens in aerospace engineering has an effect on people's lives. He said, uh, he said man, I never thought I would come to a church and be told that I was doing uh, God's work. And, and that was his phrase. And I thought, what a different understanding that a lot of people have who, who put up a big wall and they think uh, what I do from Monday to Friday is my business and it's about profit and nothing else. Uh, and, and then maybe if I have some spiritual life, that's in another category altogether. Yeah, I like that concept of a theology of work. We We really don't spend enough time, I don't think, analyzing and thinking about our worldview around work, in particular, our worldview around leadership. There are so many assumptions and so many first principles, and I think you hit on one that's really important, this idea that there's this barrier, this really strong wall between my work priorities and my social or community priorities. What would you say if one of your members of your congregation or a friend who is a leader in the business context, they're not in a nonprofit, they're not a pastor, maybe yeah. they don't even go to church, right? What would you say to a person who comes up to you and says, I am so burdened by what I see happening around me and I have no idea where to begin. I don't even know if what I do sitting in this cubicle or leading this team or launching this new software project, I don't even know if what I do makes a difference. What would you say to them in order to sort of begin to reframe their image of leadership and what's possible with leadership? What hope could you give them? Sure. Well, I, I, I have a lot of hope uh, that I'd want to give them. You know, uh, one way to understand how we have influence in the world is to say that each of us creates a kind of atmosphere. Each of us as individuals create an atmosphere. We all know those people who, when they walk into the room, everybody gets tense. Or when they walk into the room, everyone feels uh, happier and, and more free and alive. So you might think of it this way. When you're a leader, you your presence extends to a large group of people and you get them to join you. You, you can't help it if you're a leader. You influence people and, and you they join you in the creating of a space, creating of a certain ecosystem, a certain environment. You, you might think of it like hospitality. You're creating a home. And, uh, and so then you think you have a business and you have 20 employees or you have 500 employees or thousands of employees. And you think your influence on those employees affects the way those employees create space wherever they go, whether it's in your store, in your factory, in your shop or, or uh, whatever it is. So suddenly you realize we are having an influence whether we realize it or not. Again, if our only concern is how do I uh, increase my bottom line, that's sending out all kinds of messages. But if we say, 
I'm not just concerned. I'm concerned about a bottom line. I have to be to keep this business going, but I'm also concerned. How is this workplace affecting my employees? Because if I'm looking to help them have better lives, I have a feeling they're going to pass that on to their families and to their children and their neighbors and so on. Um, but then you think, what role does our company play in our industry? I'll just give a, one quick example, uh, Father Justin. I live right near the Gulf of Mexico, and everybody remembers the uh, the big uh, oil spill that happened in the uh, Deepwater Horizon. And of course, uh, you know that had a huge economic impact, and uh, as well as ecological impact. But you realize there were corporate decisions about how much attention we pay to people who raise red flags. And suddenly what seemed like one kind of simple business suddenly has an effect on millions of lives when they don't know how to empower people to speak up about their concerns. Uh, so you, you realize, wow, you know, something that was a couple hundred miles away from me was washing up on the beach near my house and affected all the businesses uh, around me. Yeah, our businesses have huge impacts, whether we realize it or not. You talk about a just, joyful, generous, and regenerative leadership approach. Yeah. I, tell me more about that definition. Sure. And if, if I'm not the CEO, how do I journey towards that? Well, in a sense, if we say we start with our identity, who we are, and let's say that part of our identity is we want to be just people. Um, so just people means I want to use my power wisely and well and for the common good. Well, suddenly that issues right away, issues like sexual harassment, issues like uh, racial justice and racial equality come to mind, but also issues of business practice. Uh, it's funny, that same series I preached about a theology of work, a woman in my congregation came up to me afterwards and said, I really need to talk to you. And this was in the pre-2007, 2008 financial crisis. Hmm. And she worked in the mortgage industry. And she came to me and she said, I'm having really serious crises of conscience about the kind of loans we're giving and who we're giving them to. And so we had a series of conversations over a couple of weeks where she planned. She was an employee. She wasn't the boss. She planned to go to the head of her, uh, her unit and say, I'm really worried. This is hurting my conscience. Can we do something about this? And that story, the way it turned out was her, her boss said, I agree with you, but I can't do anything about it. And mm -hmm. she said, I can't keep working here if we're going to keep hurting people's lives. So she went and found another job. Um, and I wish we'd had a better outcome. But there was a sense that her activated conscience, at least she then Act, tried to activate the conscience of uh, the person above her. Now, we know that thousands and thousands of decisions were made like that that resulted in an entire economic you know, collapse, uh, very, one of the most serious of our lifetime. But it, in some ways, a person who says, I want to be a just person in all of my dealings. I don't want to break the law. I don't want to break. I don't want to do unto others as I would not want them to do unto me. Um, right. The, the generosity comes in um, uh, to be gracious uh, with people. Now, obviously, we have to uphold standards and so on. But I, I'm sure every person in business knows that they've had an employee or a customer where they had a choice about whether to be generous and gracious or not. 
Um, and we that flows out. It becomes a value that people have um, in their business. But that word regenerative is one of my favorites because we've been talking more and more in the last uh, couple of decades about sustainable leadership, a sustainable business. But now we're realizing to sustain at the level where we currently are isn't enough. We actually have to, some of us have to start thinking about not just not making things worse, but actually help, helping to make things better. And when people start to bring that creativity to bear on their work, yeah, good things can happen. We, we really can become regenerative. I think you put a vision and a word out there that is is aspirational and that gives us something to shoot for, kind of no matter what position you have in leadership, that you can try to be that just person. You can try to embody that joyful attitude. You can try mm -hmm. to have that generous spirit about you. But the regenerative piece, that's such a powerful statement because we don't always think as consumers and as producers of things that get consumed about being regenerative, right? We think about recycling yeah. our Coke can when we're done drinking, but we don't often think early on in yeah. our systems, early on in the creation of a product, or early on in product development or in team development about that idea of being regenerative. If you were to lay out um, some best practices and here I'm asking you to riff with me for a minute. You know, I'm not sure that you've written about this, but you've thought a lot about being yeah. regenerative. What would be a few things that somebody could do? Maybe a few questions that somebody could ask themselves before you begin the project that might lead to a more regenerative outcome or a more regenerative leadership. I'd like to go deeper with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, a friend of mine comes to mind. Uh, he's actually retired now, but he started a business. Uh, I forget the, the, the name of the business was convert. It was a conversion business. They would convert one thing into another. So for example, they would get these big rolls of paper and you know, those little strips in a Hershey's kiss, like yeah. they would cut the, they would end up with those little strips. So they, they just converted things, one thing into another. And it was factory work. Um, and my friend uh, wanted to be regenerative in this way. And he was hiring a lot of people. Well, he realized he could go, he could make contacts with the prisons in his, uh, his part of the state. Uh, and he could say, look, if you have people coming out, uh, I'd, I'd be really willing to hire them um, in my company. So he started doing this, which was a wonderful first step. Then he found out that a lot of the employees that he was bringing in had never really learned to read. So he wanted to start a literacy program. Well, you might think uh, that's easy. Well, they, he said, I'm going to ask everyone to bring a book. And on Monday, we're going to have an hour of reading time. Um, and he, he couldn't just do this for some employees because that would sort of shame them, right? right. Um, uh, and uh, so he, he made it company-wide. Now, you might say, well, we that, that cost us money, but he considered part of the purpose of his business was doing good for his employees. And so he considered this a good thing. Well, what you can imagine that employees who've been helped in that way, and he, they, he explained why he was doing it, you know, um, they have greater loyalty to the company. They create an entirely different work relationship. And uh, when he retired, uh, more and more folks are learning about employee-owned companies and he actually sold the company to his employees. And uh, to me, it was just this beautiful example of someone 
to, and, and he made a lot of money. <laughs> he did just fine. Right. But, but he had this other value uh, built, built in. That, that to me is the beginning way that, that someone might, uh, might think about this. It sounds like he had many moments, though, before he even started hiring people, maybe even before he started the company, where he was doing what you might call the hard heart work of yes. rooting out those assumptions that kept him from seeing people for all their worth. He was rooting out those biases, unconscious yes. and conscious. He was looking with an eye uh, that was creative. He was looking like a social entrepreneur, but yeah. he was a company owner, you know, and I love yeah. that harnessing of that best of business, but at the same time, thinking like that impact leader, like that nonprofit leader. So often we leave all of this work to the nonprofits, right? We yes. think if we're going to solve poverty, you're going to leave it to the nonprofits or the government sector. I'm struck by you really are uh, not only a student of leadership, but you've also been a student of poverty. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've written, particularly in your book, Everything Must Change, about you know how if it were easy to solve poverty, we would have done that already. But it's going to take more than nonprofits and more than churches in yeah. order to do that. Um, it's going to take all of us stepping up as leaders to do that. Tell me more about that, because I see that intersection just where we began the conversation between leadership, entrepreneurship, faith and business. Um, tell me more about yeah. that. So, you know, the, the problems we have very often flow from assumptions that we share that we're not even aware of. And the first time anyone challenges our, our assumptions, we think they're crazy. I remember I had one of my assumptions challenged in this way. I was traveling. I, as you say, I, I'm interested in poverty and uh, and and in preparing to write that book. I traveled around the world and visited slums around the world. And I was in uh, I was in Central America. Uh, I I believe it was in El Salvador. And um, there are lots of little. They're like sort of a corner convenience store. They're called pulperias in um, Central America. And my uh, friend who was, we were stopping to get something. And he said, do you notice anything about this, about these pulperias? Because we stopped in several different ones in our travels. And I said, well, they really are clean. Like, I can't believe how clean they are. Hmm. And, and I can't believe how many employees they have. He said, yeah. He said, that's what a lot of Americans don't understand. He said, a lot of business leaders here, he said, in the States, you all try to reduce, it, reduce employment. You want the least number of people on your payroll as possible because you see labor as an expense. He said, down here, we see labor as an investment. He said, mm. he said if you own a pulveria, you want to hire as many people as you can because that person, all of his cousins and all of his sisters and all of his, you know, 40 of his family members will want to shop at this store because he has a happy employee in their family. And I just thought to myself, that, that especially hit me, because when you study poverty, you realize that unemployment is the root of all evil. And mm. to be able to provide people with good jobs is, is holy work. It's great work. It's important work. And it's something we're really going to need to think about as we move forward. Um, you know, so many of our problems in the United States really relate to uh, us not wanting to pay people and not wanting to pay them well. 
that mental shift that takes place and the shift that you're talking about around how to view labor, how to view human beings who need work, I think is a critical critical part of this regenerative or or social leadership uh, framework that we're talking about. Because if we don't change the way that we view human beings, yes, right, then we're never going to make it, and we're never going to have that kind of impact. We're never, we're certainly never going to have the kind of social impact that we want to have. I want to ask you a question about efficiency. I remember mm -hmm. the founder of Reconciliation Services once told me and here I'm going to be vulnerable. He said, you need to work on being far more concerned about people and people in the process than you are about the efficiency of the process. Yes. And man, that hit me hard when, when yes. he told me that, because I wasn't meaning to do that. You talked about this, the evil of unemployment yeah. that, that we really are, are, cultivating or captured by. Tell me more about that and what role does our pursuit of efficiency over people play in that? And go further with that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many dimensions to it, but as soon as you said that, I remember exactly where I was in Honduras in a slum called Nueva Siapa. And I was talking to this woman who had taken old containers, uh, you know, those uh, shipping containers mm. and cut, cut windows out of them and stuck an air conditioner on them because it was very, very hot. And this was in a dirty slum. Um, and she set up these little daycare centers because there were all these single women who, if they wanted to have jobs, they needed somewhere to bring their children. And there are 10 more stories about why there are so many single mothers in these neighborhoods and so on right. that we could talk about. But I was walking around the neighborhood with her and she said to me, and she's the one who said to me, um, uh, unemployment is the root of all evil. Hmm. And then I said, what do you mean? She said, wherever you have unemployment, you have domestic violence. You have, uh, wherever you have high unemployment, you have domestic violence, you have drug abuse. She said, I don't think HIV is a sex disease. I think it's an unemployment disease. She wow. said, you have, she just went on issue after issue after issue where people don't have decent jobs, petty crime, organized crime, gangs. And, and, you know, I just remember as I walked with her, I said, I'm seeing the world differently. You know, you realize that offering people good work is, is this enormously valuable purpose of business. And, uh, and again, it, it involves a shift in thinking, just as your, uh, someone said to you, uh, if we think efficiency is, uh, hiring as few people as possible, paying them as little as possible and getting them to work uh, with as little human interaction and contact as possible will create one kind of business and frankly, will create one kind of world. But if we were to think, no, part of the purpose of business is to create great employment. I mean, we could say that's one of the rules of the game, you know, um, mm. and, and, and if we would, it would be a very, very different world. Well, it's almost like if you don't do that, your leadership vision uh, doesn't reveal the strength of the people that you are working with. It almost creates a, a, a um, almost a subhumanity. It, yes. it does. It it leaves so much of the person out of the equation that you can't even really see them for who they really are. And now even there's this movement of you know bring your whole self to work. Okay, that's a great beginning. But still, you know, there are I've run into so many instances where there are 
HR laws or um, old ways of doing things where we have kind of this shareholder primacy rather than a yes. stakeholder primacy. And even though we're telling people, you know, bring your whole self to work, the work and our leadership style is still subhuman and dehumanizing. You know, you told me a story one time um, that I think did a great job of talking about a man who was on a leadership journey, going from that old version, that old mentality of people and places and things and business to getting to this newer idea about social leadership and integrated priorities. And um, you told me a story about a gold mine of all yeah. things. Share that story with our audience. Sure. Well, it's kind of funny because I uh, it starts by saying that I got invited to Davos, to the World Economic Forum, which I think it costs like $50,000 to get a ticket. Wow. Uh, and uh, uh, But the organizers of the event, uh, this is shortly after September 11th, they said, you know what, if Muslims and, and Christians and Jews blow up the world, it's bad for business. So they brought a group of religious leaders there to be and to talk about uh, how we could build a more peaceful world. And I was asked to give a couple talks. So uh, I was traveling from one venue to another on a bus and a couple sits down next to me and the fellow says, I heard your talk the other day. He says, I, I was hoping I'd get to meet you. So we had about a 20 minute bus ride and he told me his story. He said, our company, does, we are a gold mining company and we were going into a little town in South Africa and we wanted to do things right. We tried our hardest to do things right. He said, but I've got to tell you, we spent 20 years mining there. We got all the gold that we could easily get. We shut down the mine. And he said, I've got to tell you, all that's left is a, a destroyed landscape and a lot of prostitution. Hmm. And he said, and, and he, he said, we tried. We, we wanted to do better than that. But we just did the same old thing once again. And I, I remember as we had that conversation, I almost felt like he, he knew that I was a pastor and he was making his, making his confession. But that confession didn't just tell me about someone who had failed. It told me about someone who cared and he wanted to make a difference. And But what it was going to require, I think, is, is even deeper thinking than, than what they had been able to do yet. But it took someone like him to say, we don't want to keep doing this, you know? And, and I think... That's where our regrets and our pain and, and the sense of mistakes we made are often some of our most important teachers. I don't want to do this again. I want to do better. That, Yeah, that, that's what I, uh, from that story that stays with me. Well, what I like about that is it shows that leadership and the journey towards a, a more regenerative or a social leadership, impactful leadership, it's it truly is a journey. It's something done in relationship with your past, with your mistakes, with the people around you. And it's really yes. about co-creating solutions, not being the, the wizard behind the curtain that knows all and has all and does all. Um, now, I want to try to bring us back down out of the clouds in theory, right? I'm, I'm back down with a local leader in the United States who's confronted with something like a community dealing with poverty, and they want to make a difference. Um, in what way can that leader be an economic activist? I, we talked about hiring people who might not get hired. Are there other ways that you've seen that a social leader can make a difference and be that economic activist? So I live, uh, I live in Southwest Florida, and we're really the center of the migrant farm uh, 
community for east of the Mississippi. And they start down here growing tomatoes in December, uh, from October to January. And then they move up, you know, and they'll end up in Michigan harvesting apples in, mm. in October. Um, and um, there's been a really interesting form of economic activism here because the farm workers didn't get a raise. Uh, they, they, they didn't get a raise. They get paid per pound that they pick. They didn't get a raise since the 1970s. Can you believe wow. that? Wow, no. And uh, so some years ago, a group of the workers got together and uh, formed a coalition and, um, and they got clergy involved and we helped, uh, we all worked together and designed something called the Fair Food Program. And the idea was they would get a penny more per pound for the, for the tomatoes that they picked. They would get guarantees of things like restrooms because there are men and women working in the fields together and they weren't mm -hmm. given restrooms. They, they would be given a water break. And when you're working in the Florida heat, you need a water break. Right. They, they, they were never told uh, there, there were birth defects happening and they were being exposed to all these pesticides. So suddenly mm -hmm. all of these things, you realize all of these were happening because, because companies could get away with it. So mm -hmm. what happened is we started going to the buyers of tomatoes and saying, would you be willing to commit to paying a penny more per pound and to only buy your tomatoes from growers and farms that agreed to these basic uh, improvements in, in worker life? And um, it was amazing. First, uh, uh, Taco Bell, we worked on them. And eventually they said yes. And eventually McDonald's said yes. And eventually Trader Joe's said yes. We're still working on some of those companies. Uh, hmm. Publix ha has refused to say yes. One of the biggest buyers of tomatoes. But um, but this to me represented uh, th the way this worked was that uh, we got the word out to consumers, and they would say we would rather shop at a store that we know is not exploiting farm workers. Hmm. Right. So it becomes a part of the company brand. And they're exactly. living out that embedded intentional priority. Exactly. What I love about that story, though, it, it's amazing what the group of you, pastors, which I think, again, coming back to that intersection of business, faith, yes. philanthropy, right? Yes. But um, what, I'm, what I'm really excited about also are the company leaders who said, I'm going to make it a priority. And yes. the group of pastors and the activists in the nonprofit were the ones that did the organizing. I don't think there's any reason why the companies couldn't also do that, right? And yes. I think that would be the next evolution would be don't wait as a leader for the nonprofit to come up with the solution. Get out there and figure out on your own, how can we bring to bear that solution? Now, obviously, there's, there's economic uh, interest at play there, but those leaders in the companies that you mentioned that did make the decision for the one penny, those are social leaders to me who are yes. at least trying to embed their social priorities uh, and that corporate social responsibility into their day-to-day -day work. Exactly right. And, and the good news is I have a friend who's a consultant and her job is she goes to companies who, and they want to improve their brand value. And so mm -hmm. she helps them figure out where are areas that they could make continual improvement in this area. And, and obviously they've still got to make a profit, but they're realizing that their brand is a super valuable asset. And when people think of their brand as this is a brand that is making this a better world, uh, they say, well, why would I want to shop at that other place that doesn't share those kind of commitments? And, and this is where leadership 
at the end of the day is about identity, I think. It's about the identity of the leader. Who am I? What are my values? How do I want to live them out? And then it's about the identity of the company or the business. What is the ethos, the reputation, the character that we want to display uh, in the world? And that to me is good work and that's holy work. Yeah, absolutely. But you're also talking about, I'll mention it again, this idea of hard heart work. I mean, you're talking yes. about an individual leader saying, I am going to identify my priorities. I'm going to work to integrate those priorities so that I move beyond just sort of charitable intentions, you know, from the margin of my life, writing checks and serving on boards. But I'm going to integrate those social priorities into my day-to-day work. And no matter where I am in my leadership lane, I'm going to find ways to activate and then operationalize those priorities. But I think it takes that shift in how you see the world and that shift in how you see people. As we wrap up, I always ask everybody on the podcast, if there were two or three practices in your life that you could share with us, things that um, you use that help you on this journey to becoming a more impactful leader, a social leader that you could teach us, what are those things? What are two or three practices that we can adopt? So uh, I'll, I'll tell you, when I, when I was a pastor, one of my mentors said to me, "You, all of the good you're doing in the church, you're getting paid for. He hmm. said, you need to find some place to do some good where you're not getting paid and where nobody knows about it. And I think that's not just good advice for pastors. I think all of us should find some place where we do some good that we're not getting paid for. Uh, and that would be a practice. Uh, and, and it's best if it can be kept a secret, not done for public relations. And, you know, it, and, and very often it's something enjoyable. But I'd say that would be a, a start. Um, a, another practice that I recommend uh, is... Uh, is finding some place where you can be a minority, uh, a racial minority, a place where you're surrounded by difference, breaking out of our, uh, our de- what we might call democratic apartheid. In other words, where we actually choose to separate ourselves from one another. How that could happen, it could happen through sports, it could happen through volunteering, it could happen through charity, it could happen through any number of things, but where we work to do. So some things like that I think are really important. And then maybe the last thing I'd say is I think it really is valuable for all of us to find a time to retreat where we unplug from social media and where we get away from work for a couple of days and we bring along one or two of those books. Maybe we go to a retreat center, maybe... It go, you know, in some way we find a way and in whatever ways we center down and ask ourselves those deep questions. Why am I here? What are my values? Am I happy with who I'm becoming? Um, I think for leaders, that's especially important. Well, Brian, thank you for sharing all you have today and for taking us on your leadership journey. And thank you for all the wonderful books that you've written. If people haven't uh, gone to to read your materials, what's the best way for them to find you uh, well, online? Yeah, my website is my name, brianmclaren.net. So brianmclaren.net. And then there's links to my social media and lots of resources online and so on. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I certainly encourage people to go and check out the books that we've mentioned today and the resources that we've mentioned. And thank you again for giving us a wonderful example of being a social leader yourself about 
uh, about how we can become more just, joyful, generous, and regenerative leaders as we journey together and try to make a difference in this world. Thanks for the inspiration and especially for your time today, Brian. My honor to be with you. Thanks, Father Justin. Great conversation. Really appreciate it. Hey, and I want to thank everyone listening for joining us again today on this episode of the Social Leader Podcast. And I want to remind you that if you are interested in becoming a social leader, there is a step-by-step guide with literally everything that you need to begin your journey towards becoming a social leader. You can begin to close that gap between your passion and your social action, and it makes you just enjoy your work all the more. I've got that guide for you. It's called the Social Leader Essentials eCourse, and it's the ultimate social leadership starting point. In this course, I teach you the social entrepreneurship mindset, how to become bias aware and trauma informed. It comes with free tools, frameworks, study guides, everything that you need to immediately take the next step towards your social leadership journey. If you're interested in that, just go to thesocialleader.org today. You can sign up right now, download the course and even begin right now. We'd love to have you back here again for the next episode in two weeks of the Social Leader Podcast. And until then, let's together learn how to lead with greater social impact. See you next time.